our hearts be always and everywhere acceptable to you, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. He came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. When he reached the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not come into the time of trial. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him and gave him strength. In his anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling on the ground. When he got up from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping because of grief. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. Have you ever been to the Grand Canyon? Do you remember how you reacted? I do. You walk to the edge. You look down. You look across. And suddenly, you are unspeakably eloquent. Wow. And you just keep going back to the edge and saying, wow. The Palm Sunday liturgy always strikes me a little bit that way. Wow. We watch the drama of the final meal that Jesus offers, the one that we celebrate every Sunday. We observe the disciples fumble and struggle to understand what Jesus has been trying to tell them about his mission and about the kingdom of God. We want to shout, watch out, as Judas betrays Jesus. And we puzzle over who is really in charge as Pilate cross-examines Jesus and then finally condemns him to death. Is Pilate in control? Is Herod in control? Is it the crowds? Or in spite of his apparent helplessness, is it Jesus? who is in charge. It is hard to get beyond wow. <clears throat> but in the brief intimate passage that I just read, and I bet you're glad I'm not preaching on the whole thing, we offered a different way into the Palm Sunday reading. And I think its presence here in the narrative is no accident. Students used to ask me, how did the writers of the gospel have any idea Jesus had this conversation? And how did they know what Jesus prayed? But I think the answer is actually pretty easy. I think it left an indelible impression on the disciples who went with Jesus to the Mount of Olives. Here they are in the shadow of the cross with Jesus, alone, as Luke describes it, as was his custom. And the disciples are invited to pray. Jesus longs to be delivered, so he prays to be delivered. 
But of course he isn't. Instead, he's subjected to a farcical trial. He is abused and tortured. And then he is executed as a common criminal. I am fairly sure that retelling the story for the disciples was filled with regret to some extent. But I'm equally sure as I've sat with this passage over and over again that they told and retold the story to remind themselves and us of the enormous and sacred opportunity that we have in walking with Jesus and praying with him if we are prepared to receive it. What the disciples are telling us is this. The Christian life is a life of availability to the purposes of God in the shadow of the cross. It is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. It is not the stuff of happy, clappy indifference to the needs of the world. It is a tough, uncompromising honesty about the brokenness and the evil of the world, grounded in the conviction that the God we worship has invaded that world and has passed through death in order to conquer it. In telling this intimate story from the Mount of Olives, the disciples remind us of that invitation and they point us to the means by which those who choose the way of Christ step forward to shoulder this radical God-given freedom. And there are in this passage, I think, at least three windows into that radical freedom. One, like Jesus, the secret of our strength lies in the time that we spend with God in prayer. He came out and went, as was his custom, to pray. Preparation, discipline, training, attention, effort, these are all important. You don't need to remind this first child of any of that. No one who has ever given their lives to Christ has made the kind of difference that is characteristic of the great saints of the church by simply dreaming about doing something great for their families or their communities or by waiting for magic to happen. Even prayer requires the effort to show up. But ultimately, what becomes clear on the Mount of Olives is that everything that Jesus has said or done relies on an inner conversation with God that is nurtured far, far from the craziness, commotion, and hostility around him. He relied on the Father, and he teaches his disciples that they are to rely on the Father. I've heard people say, I don't have the gift of prayer, that they are people of action. I've even heard priests and pastors say that. And I have never heard anything either more foolish or more clueless than that. 
people who say that they can't pray cut themselves off from the very thing that makes Christians who they are. People who claim that God is present in history and determined to make a difference between us. And that difference can't be made without prayer. Second, one of the secrets about the Christian life is that we are people who listen. Radical God-given freedom cannot be had without this, the hardest of all kinds of prayers. The crowds are too loud. The desire to protect ourselves is too strong. The threats that the world presents instill too much fear. If you don't think so, ask parents what makes it difficult to offer their children the kind of wisdom that will keep them safe and secure and lead a meaningful life. If you don't think that it's hard to hear the voice of God, ask children and young adults what makes it difficult to chart their own course rather than to go along to get along. Or Ask any adult what makes it difficult to own their own convictions. Ask leaders what it takes to act courageously and why they don't. Or for that matter, ask priests why they don't tell their congregations the truth. There is no such thing as absolute freedom. All of life's choices are conditioned. But the disciple, the Christian, is someone who remains awake to pray with God and the disciple's life is conditioned by one thing and one thing only, hearing the voice of God. And the third thing that shapes a life of radical and God-given freedom is the willingness to put our lives back into the hands of God. In short to take up our cross. It is easy, I think, to imagine that the prayer of Jesus on the Mount of Olives is nothing but a problem, a problem for prayer, a problem for Christians. Here is perfect God and perfect man praying with one desire to be delivered. And instead, he suffers and dies. Some people have tried to explain it away by theorizing that God willed the cross to happen and orchestrated the causes that led to Jesus' execution. But theories of this kind attribute evil to God that we would not countenance in another human being. And they raise really serious questions about the moral culpability of anyone who harms others. Churches and religious leaders in this country responded to the challenge of racism in the 60s, and it led to significant changes in this country's laws. Did God cultivate racism in order to raise up Martin Luther King? I don't think so. The war in Ukraine has created the kind of leadership that the world has not seen in 80 years. Is God using the war crimes unfolding there to create a Volodymyr Zelensky? 
Hear me clearly, please. Rightly understood, Christianity is not a flaccid, pallid effort to make excuses for the evil of the world in the name of defending the existence of God. It is a life built on the truth of this clear-eyed observation. History and the world are enthralled to evil. Hell is already here. And God is in the business of resurrection. Not by using evil or creating it, but by raising up disciples who put their lives in the hands of God, regardless of the circumstances, over and over and over again until there are no circumstances left to face. And the prayer that Jesus raises on the Mount of Olives is a witness to that resolve, to that way of looking at the world, to that kind of radical freedom. And I hope you're also able to hear this. That message is a great occasion for real hope, real joy, and real celebration. I can't imagine anything more deflating or useless than a version of the gospel that lies behind the state of the world, that dresses up evil as good or as blessings in disguise, and that commends to its followers a life of surrender and simple-mindedness. But that, my friends, is not what the gospel offers. What we find on the Mount of Olives, at the hinge point of history, just ahead of Christ's triumph over death, is a very different kind of message. And it is not enough to stand at the edge of that story and say over and over again, wow. It is a life to be lived, forged in the presence of God, informed by listening for the voice of God, and lived out in availability to the purposes of God. To whom be glory now and forever. Amen.